If you will, turn to Ecclesiastes 9. I'm going to be covering the first 12 verses, Ecclesiastes 9, today. Um, if you know my wife and you know where she graduated college, you know that a couple weeks ago we were watching the college football national championship and uh, between Georgia and Alabama, and we were certainly not rooting for Alabama. You might notice our car by the flags on it uh, out back. Well, as we were watching it, and especially at the end, um, in the interviews and with the players and coaches afterwards, you kept hearing them refer to all of the, the 6 a.m. practices that they endured um, basically a year before that, that moment. Um, in the middle of winter, granted it's Georgia, but in the middle of winter, in the dark, um, getting up, going out into these grueling training sessions. Uh, despite the season being eight or nine months off, the championship that they were hoping to get to being a year off, uh, they knew that they would, uh, to be sufficiently prepared to face the season and to face the best of the other teams and take down their nemesis, Alabama, they would have to begin to train their bodies then um, to be prepared for that moment, to be quicker, stronger, more agile. Uh, because they knew the season was coming, it would bring challenges and tests and trials, and that this training would be necessary. And really, any professional athlete has to do things like this, right? You can't just wait till you're in the moment and be like, well, I, you have to plan and strengthen your muscles so that you can respond appropriately in those times. And you see something similar in the way we approach life. You can live in a way that you anticipate the seasons of tests and challenges and trials and are constantly preparing yourself, training your mind and your heart to be prepared for them. You look down the road a year, five years, 15 years, and of course, none of us, we don't know exactly what's coming, but we know that there will be trials and tests that will come. And how we live now, the training that we go through now, the faith and character that we exercise now will affect our ability to whether those times well or not, to, to go through them with endurance and strength, even peace and joy. And this is something of what God is doing in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's helping us be prepared for what's to come, for what this life is often like, as Josh was just praying. He's showing us that the seasons of life will often be hard, grueling, toilsome, weary. They will require a lot of effort. Alabama is coming. My wife's not even in here to hear this this morning. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. And God is giving us this. He's showing us what is to come so that we might be better prepared to not only just endure and get through these trials, but so that we might live in the midst of them with joy with hope, with comfort, and with peace, and come out the other side victorious and still joyfully celebrating. And so we've been going through Ecclesiastes, uh, and one of the things that you do see over and over again is the author commending joy. But it's not a joy that is deluded and distracted about reality. It's not a, a fantasy world that we just enter into and just pretend that life is not as it is. It's a joy that comes 
that persists and abounds in the face of life as it actually is. With all its ups and downs, with its bitter trials, unforeseen situations, unforeseen difficulties, and in all of the joys and celebrations as, and blessings as well. And so today we're going to dig into this joy a little bit more and what makes it possible. Um, much of our text today is simply restating what we've already seen in Ecclesiastes a number of times. Uh, the author is observing all of these vanities, frustrations of life, and we've, we've come across these a number of times, and so we'll consider that first, but then we're going to move into verses 7 through 9 in this jarringly different section that commends joy, and we'll spend a lot of our time unpacking those verses. Okay, so we're going to start at verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, we get these snapshots of the vanity or seeming vanity of life that, if you've been with us, are becoming quite familiar now. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil. It's unfair. It's unjust in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Uh, so I've said this a number of times, but one thing to keep in mind as we're reading through Ecclesiastes is you can kind of imagine that there's an asterisk after every sentence with a, directing you to a note down at the bottom which says, yes, 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 but keep on reading. Keep on reading to the end. This is not the final conclusion. Because you reach all of these kind of tentative conclusions, but they are not the, the end, the end of the matter. The author is journaling down his observations of life, it's his, his thoughts on life, his emotions on life, and they give us an accurate, true-to-life picture of, of what life is like, right? We, we notice these things, and life seems unfair, but it's not the end of the story. It's not the full story. It's not the end of the matter. And so here in these verses, the author laments that life seems unfair unjust. Good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people. We sometimes kind of want karma to be the law of the land, right? We, want, we wish righteous and wise and good people had good easy lives and the wicked and ungodly had a little bit harder lives or at least had to pay some consequences for their actions. But oftentimes we look at the world and it seems like, as he says, the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. Trials and suffering and difficulties come to the good and evil alike. And sometimes it even seems worse than that. It seems like the, the wicked prosper and succeed while those who are trying to live righteous and godly lives have more suffering. And we cry out with the author like he does, vanity of vanities. Gods, what is going on? Where are you? Where is justice? Are you even in charge? Are you seeing this? Do you care? Why are you allowing this to happen? You find this in a lot of the Psalms as well. 
the Psalms of lament, of lamenting and crying out to God. Um, the Bible is not whitewashed about such experiences and questions and difficulties in life. Um, God is actually inviting us to bring them to him when we feel like this, to, to believe and expect that he can handle such things. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do we take him up on that? Do we take Jesus up on his invitation to come to him with all of the things that are weighing us down, our disappointments, our anxieties, our questions, our doubts, our emotions, and come in faith and lay them before him and say, God, help. I don't know what to do. The author of Ecclesiastes isn't quite done lamenting yet. Continuing on in verse 3, he says, Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So everywhere you look, all you, wherever you observe the world and humanity, you see evil, you see madness or folly. It's the opposite of wisdom. And we can't just say, well, it's the world out there, it's all those people out there as if a satisfying solution to the madness and evil of the world is just to withdraw and become a hermit and just live by ourselves. Um, I hate to break it to you, but you will find yourself disappointed and frustrated with yourself. You'll find evil in your own heart. And as a result of this condition, uh, he says, death comes to all. The memory of them is forgotten. We have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Uh, if you go down to verse 10, it, it continues with that. It says, there's no more work or thoughts or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now, we need to pause a little bit here and consider what this is saying. Because the view of death, and whatever there might be after death, in the Old Testament can seem quite different than the view of if you've read your New Testament and understand the view of death and what comes after in the New Testament, what we find there. The word Sheol here in verse 10 is the most common word for death and the afterlife in the Old Testament. And the focus is simply on the body going in the ground and the person being gone from the land of the living. It often means nothing more than grave. The body is in the grave. Uh, and it's seen as the place where the, both the righteous and the wicked go. They go in the grave. The bodies go in the grave. They're gone from the land of the living. And if there is to be any hope after that, God is going to have to do something. God is going to have to rescue from the grave. And so while you don't find the full teaching that we find in the New Testament and from Jesus on resurrection and, and eternity, we don't find that in the Old Testament. There are certainly hints of it, and it's pointing us towards that, including in Ecclesiastes. Uh, just a couple quick examples. Isaiah 26 says, The dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. 
Similarly, Daniel 12 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. But we don't really find this full perspective, this hope, in this passage before us here. But I don't think it's hard to understand the perspective of the author. While we live in this earth, on this earth, we tend to have somewhat grand illusions of our longevity, of our power, of our control, of our greatness. We become filled with the pride of life, of what we think we can do and accomplish. We forget, as in the words of James, that we are like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And this matter of control, or our lack of control, is really at the heart of what Ecclesiastes is getting at, and really at the heart of what Ecclesiastes is trying to expose and burst, this idea that we are in control. And all of this is summed up well in the last two verses we'll consider before we get to the joy section. So we're going to jump down to verse 11 and then come back to 7. So verse 11, and think about just this, like the idea of bursting our illusions of control in this. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So we try to be in control by being wise, smart, having knowledge, strength. We could add wealth, shrewdness, even kindness and love, being loving, being moral. We think that we can control our life. If we do these things, again, karma. If we do these things, then these things will happen and we can direct the course of our life. But the author observes that, well, life doesn't actually work like that. Time and chance, things which we have no control over, happen to everyone. Of course, in a God-ruled world, there is no such thing as chance. God is in charge. He is providentially ruling over all things, bringing about his good purposes. But the point is that you are not God. We are not God, and we don't have that power. We are not in control. No matter how we live, we can't control the future. Like fish that are swimming along, just minding their own business, suddenly they're caught in a net. Life comes at us unexpectedly and everything changes. Well, altogether, this is one of the more depressing sections of Ecclesiastes. There's really nothing new in it. We've already considered all of this before. It's, you know, again, it's like a journal. He's just writing down these things, but all of it kind of comes together here, and it's pretty depressing and hopeless. Nothing really positive in this section. So before moving on, it's, it's wise to consider, because this is what a lot of Ecclesiastes is like, why did God see fit to give us such texts? What is the point? Well, I think one of the points, perhaps the greatest one, is that there is wisdom in stopping our endless 
busyness and distractions and diversions and coping mechanisms and the way we just numb ourselves and actually observing life as it actually is. Being honest about the struggles, the temptations, the frustrations, the losses, all that seems vain and meaningless. Not just to brush past them quickly and just distract ourselves with endless news and social media and TV and sports and games and all of this stuff that we fill our time with, whether good or bad. There is wisdom in stopping and considering life and our experience of life. And yet, the author does move on from there. And so, if you go to verse 7, the first word there is go. There's a command to go, and then it's followed by a command to go and seek joy. In other words, don't just stay there bemoaning your life, wallowing in self-pity. All of those things may be true, and your experience of life may match his and what you see and all the vanity, but that's not it, as Josh prayed so elegantly. However, there is more. That's not the end of the matter. Get up and go. There is joy and goodness and hope and comfort to be had, even in the midst of all this. And so let's read verses 7 through 10 and unpack them. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. So notice how, uh, dra- like how stark this stands out in contrast to everything we just read before and after. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. These were signs of joy and celebration, just as sackcloth and ashes were signs of mourning and and humility. Uh, These were ways to show that you were celebrating. Verse 9, enjoy life, life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge in Sheol, in, or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now, this is similar in some respects to other passages we've seen where the author is commending joy. And one of the things we need to clear up with these passages is what the author is not saying. He is not encouraging an attitude of, well, life is hard. Life is all vain, and so just give up. Just give up any hope and go out and just find whatever ounce of pleasure, distract yourself, find whatever joy you can in whatever ways you can. That's the best you can hope for. Sorry, it's too bad. That's not what the author's saying. That, that is called hedonism, you know, seeking pleasure merely for pleasure's sake. It's often summed up in the phrase, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And apparently that's it. That's the end of the matter. That's all there is to life. No. What Ecclesiastes is commending, what the rest of the Bible is commending, the the view of joy and pleasure and delight is radically different and radically better. 
And it is different in this, in that it is always connected to the unchanging reality of God. Joy in Scripture is always connected to God, to who He is, to what He's done. It's always theological at root. It's not just a joy floating out there, just this concept that you can define how you want to go find it. It is a joy in God. It's not rooted or dependent on our own fickle feelings, on our uncertain and uncontrollable situations, and so it comes and goes. But it is rooted in and dependent on God. Much of the time in Ecclesiastes, when, when we are commanded to pursue joy, it's, uh, it's connected to this idea of receiving life as a gift from God and receiving, accepting our position in life as a gift from God. Not trying to grab life by the horns and just um, control it for our own ends, but accepting what God brings. But here, we get a somewhat different perspective. Look closely at verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Do you see the logic of the verse? The ability to live with joy and gladness is somehow dependent on having, knowing, and resting in the approval, favor, and delight of God. The word for approval here means accepted with pleasure. It's not just a mere, sure, I approve of that. It's accepting with pleasure or being pleased and delighted with. In other words, in light of what we've been considering in Ecclesiastes, what matters more than figuring out, figuring out all the complexities and answers to life, which is a meaningless task? What matters more than finding satisfaction in everything, which will leave us devoid of joy and satisfaction? What matters more than all of that is finding and living and resting in the approval of God. If we knew that God was with us and for us, that he delighted in us, rejoiced over us as we considered in Zechariah last year. He sings loudly over you. If we knew that God knew us at the deepest level and yet still loved us, and that, that his love and pleasure and acceptance wasn't based on anything we have done or will do, but was based on what he's done for us in Jesus, then we would no longer have to prove our existence, continue to try to solidify our worth and identity, even strive to find meaning and satisfaction in everything and everyone. We would be operating from a completely different place of rest and joy in God. And of course, this is what the story of the Bible is about. This is what God has been doing from the beginning. God is and has been working to bring us into his approval. Uh, part of that story is that we don't automatically have God's approval and that we don't automatically even desire his approval. We desire many other things 
As we saw a couple chapters ago, uh, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. In other words, we've God had made us good, called us to trust him, but we sought out many other plans and schemes to live life. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. And God doesn't, God's approval doesn't just work by him shrugging his shoulders about all of this, lowering his standards, turning a blind eye to our sin. That's not how God's approval works. Uh, that the agnostic view of God, which is very common even today, is, is essentially this, that God doesn't much care how we live. God doesn't much care how the world goes, isn't much involved, doesn't feel too strongly about anything, just wants to leave us to ourselves. That couldn't be further from the truth. God's approval is costly and thus amazing and life-changing. The story of Scripture is that if God, if we are going to have God's approval and favor and, and enter into his loving arms, then God is going to have to move towards us. God is going to have to do something dramatic to overcome our sin and rebellion. And this is God's plan from the beginning, and God does this in Jesus. And the readers, the first readers of Ecclesiastes could look at this God who had revealed himself to be gracious and merciful and hope in this. For us, we can look back and we see what God has done in Jesus. In Christ alone, in his death in our place for our sins, there is forgiveness and cleansing and justification and endless and sufficient grace for all of our sins and sufferings. So that we might live freely in his approval and welcome. True grace and forgiveness is costly for God. And when we realize this, when we realize who he is and what he's done and receive it by faith, we realize, we come to see that this matters more, this is more significant and weighty than whatever our experience of life is. Right now, in the past, in the future. All of our frustrations and tears and despair, they don't become meaningless. They don't become, we're not to ignore them or just shove them down, but they take a back seat and they're put in their rightful place. They can no longer define us. They can no longer determine who we are, determine our future. They are ultimately emptied of their power. And so in Jesus, we can take verse 7 as speaking, as a command directly to us. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. He goes on to say, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Uh, this is certainly not an exhaustive list of areas to find joy in life, but it points us to just the everyday things of life, Right? This doesn't just say, well, you can have joy when you're on vacation. You can have joy on the weekends. But other than that, I wouldn't expect much. You can have joy when you're eating and drinking in your marriage, in your home, at your work. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. As you gather with your church, as you go on vacation, as you do your leisure and exercise and hobbies. 
all of the vanities of life that the author has been observing, that we've been considering, aren't the last or most significant word on life. It's true we don't have any control, we don't have ultimate control of our lives. But we don't need to because God does and he is good. It's true that we are all marching to the grave. But we don't need to fear that or try to evade it or pretend that that's not real. Jesus has conquered it and in him we can too. The hopelessness and despair and vanity of life is not the last word. Jesus and the cross is. And consider a couple of specific examples of what this means, of how this applies to our life. For those of you married, consider the word on finding joy in your spouse here. In verse 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. How are you doing in this? How are you doing not just coping and getting through and enduring marriage, which comes with its difficulties and, and sins and need for forgiveness and challenges and all of this, but how are you doing in fighting for joy in one another? Again, this joy is rooted in knowing who you are in, in Jesus, knowing that you are approved and accepted and loved in him. Another specific application, verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. In other words, work and whatever it is you are spending your time doing is is not meaningless. As we come to rest in the approval of God, we can work diligently at whatever we do. Whatever the lot in life that God has given us, whether we are working for full-time for a career, part-time, whether we are stay-at-home, parent, a student, whatever lot in life God has given us, God has good purpose for us there, and he would call us to work with our might, not ultimately just to please our boss, not ultimately just to get ahead in life or for our own satisfaction, but ultimately for the Lord. As Paul says later in the New Testament, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So what would it be like to to live in this place? What would it be like to live confidently in God's favor and approval in all of life? To know that you didn't have to squeeze every ounce of joy and satisfaction out of every relationship, every experience, everything you do in life. That that's not, that the meaning and identity and worth of your life is not dependent on that. To know that you didn't have to fight for power and control and respect. To know that the unforeseen things of life, the hardships that you never imagined you'd have to live with, We're not unforeseen by God and cannot change what matters most. That God is still with you and that God loves you. To know that you're not defined by your weaknesses, 
by your struggles, by your failures, by your guilt. To know, on the other hand, that you're not defined by your strengths and your joys and your blessings. To know that you can stop striving to find a satisfying solution to life on your own terms. This mythical, perfect balance of work, life, family, church that is out there. And to know that you can stop thinking that with, with just one more change, a new house, a new community, a new church, a new spouse, a new family, a new job, a new life stage, that happiness and satisfaction awaits you. Ecclesiastes has been bursting those bubbles all along. No. In Jesus, we already have what we need and what we most long for. We have the approval of God, the delight and joy of God. And that is enough. Let's pray.